and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub. Series 7, Session 7. It is Thursday the 18th of November 2021. Welcome back and this session is uh, titled Understanding COVID Positive Care Pathways, Part 6, Paediatric and Household Care. So I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways from which we're all zooming in from today. We pay our respects to elders both past and present and we uh, commit to working together in the spirit of mutual understanding, respect and reconciliation and I wish to extend that respect to any Aboriginal people connecting in today. So today our COVID series has focused on the steps in the COVID positive pathways from that positive diagnosis through the public health intake, risk stratification, clinical assessment process, through clinical management, uh, remote patient monitoring and patient self-monitoring. But in this session today, we're gonna focus on uh, a, a, a way from the steps in the pathway to consider the needs of special groups. And in today's session, we're going to focus on our littlest members of the community, kids. So how does COVID care in children look? What are the needs of this group in regards to illness, monitoring and escalation points? How do we consider their care in the context of their households and families? And finally, what can be borrowed from our experiences in managing other viruses in general practice that can now be applied to managing this novel virus in the community and with this special group of community members? Uh, our case today focuses on a young person uh, with uh, COVID and a, a asthma exacerbation and asks of us, um, the questions of how we might manage this in the primary care setting. Um, so let's get underway. So I'm Bianca Forrester, GP, and I'm, I'm hosting today's ECHO with uh, Gemma Misbach and Fiona Quigley, ECHO coordinators. Um, I'd like to now, yes, talk about what we've got on today. So um, Linda Govan will bring you the PHN update and Kate Graham will discuss all things public health vaccination, COVID care update when it comes to uh, the latest news. We are going to introduce uh, Mr. Matthew Drake. He's a paediatric, um, he's a peds nurse, but he's uh, more recently a paediatric COVID navigator at the Ballarat at Home um, service. And so he's going to describe how Ballarat are implementing those um, safer care standardised paediatric care pathways in their region and uh, his experiences with caring for this um, part of the community. Um, we're delighted that Jeff Urquhart, Dr. Jeff Urquhart, GP, as you all know, um, GP liaison unit now at Bowen Public Health Unit, um, will be bringing us our case today. And uh, on our panel for discussion, Dr. Karen Ahrens uh, from the Grampians Public Health Unit. So good morning, everyone, and welcome. Um, I think that's probably it for me. You know the learning outcomes. You know how Zooms and Echo works. No, that's it. Great. Beautiful. Over to you, Linda. Thank you, Bianca, and good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to today's Echo. Uh, I've just put some of the latest stats in. So I've got some of our vaccination rates. So you can see that uh, West Vic PHN is doing really well across uh, compared well compared to Victoria and Australia and within our sub regions looking really strong with um, almost all of our regions at 95% almost almost there. Um, just moving on to the next slide. Thanks, Gemma. I've popped in the data today. We've got the, the over 16s, um, as you can see, all sitting over 90. We've just got Ararat at 89.7, but that data is taken from Tuesday. So I'm sure they've ticked into the 90% range now, but I've also got in the 12 and over vaccination rates as well. And if you compare that to the Victoria's um, roadmap, which is measured on the 12 plus um, fully vaccinated, we're almost, well, we're, we're ticking along really well there. So um, so that's for the Grampians region there. And yeah, Bowen Southwest again, uh, strongly over 16 or 95% and over. And the over 12s, we've still got some areas above 80 moving or moving towards 90 plus. So looking really good. So 
in um, line with that, and I'll just move to the next slide, we've got a, a community thank you campaign that will start on the 19th and 20th of November, actually, um, for all our subregions. I've popped, just popped the Ballarat and Goldfields sliding there, but you'll be seeing those in the local um, newspapers, local media as well. So just a thank you to the community for, for really get, getting out there and being vaccinated. The, the key things from a PHN perspective at the minute um, that is probably troubling general practice is around wastage management for the two vaccines. AstraZeneca, it's a little easier to um, return that um, to the via the VOC, Vaccine Operations Centre, um, just got details there for the process for that. Pfizer is, is more difficult to, to transfer to other practices. Nobody is, is needing stock at the moment. The public health units are also well stocked. So really the, the strategy really only is um, to reduce your minimum allocation to 60 or fortnight. We will try and um, move it if we can, um, and you can contact us, but also do contact the, contact the VOC as well to let them know that you've got stock that you probably won't get to use. Uh, next slide, thanks. Um, in regards to vulnerable populations, the um, residential inreach has started with Aspen um, going into aged care. We also have um, our public health units doing some inreach as well. TLC is another organisation in the Greater Geelong region. So they're going in, they're doing, Aspen's only doing a one, one clinic visit um, based on the last, the, the six months since the second visit. So there will be residents that will need um, vaccinations because they won't, won't have been there or they were unwell when Aspen visited the last time. So there will be a need for GPs just to check if you've got residents in those facilities that they may need um, a different avenue or different pathway to access a vaccination. Um, we've had a few calls to the PHN just in regards um, from practices looking for support lines for vulnerable patients who are COVID positive and needing support. That I think I'll, um, we'll put some extra information up on our health pathways, but the, the pathway into support for vulnerable populations is vulnerable people is for to call the uh, coronavirus hotline and um, they'll determine what supports are available. So if, if family and friends support isn't available to people. And finally, the Living with COVID Care Pathways package um, support from the Commonwealth. There's still some discussions happening between the Commonwealth and state and PHNs around what that's going to look like. So really can't give you any further details yet, but um, it's really, it's close to, to um, actually coming into fruition. So I think that's probably where we're at at the moment. Thanks, Bianca. Thanks, Linda. Okay, over to you, Craig Graham. Thanks. Good morning. Um, for a week that um, is a bit unusual in the COVID world, we haven't had too many changes um, in public health guidance, which is a refreshing change for all of us. Um, we are coming up to the next phase on the roadmap, which I think is still to be determined a little bit as to how that's going to look for all of us in general practice. I think as healthcare environments, it is likely that we will still keep at our COVID peak status, um, given that that is a guidance that sits across the whole healthcare sector. So for us, that means sticking with the PPE guidance that's around COVID peak, sticking with the mask requirements um, on entry and those kind of things. Um, but it will be in contrast to the rest of the community who won't be wearing masks indoors. Um, so it will mean that on entry, you may have more questions from patients as to why you need to wear masks in healthcare settings, why they have to wear masks at all, all those kind of things. So just those extra check-in measures and that confirmation, maybe educating admin staff as well, 
um, as that comes through because they may be at the front line of getting more questions. So for schools and early childcare settings, um, which is topical today because we've got the paediatric um, session for ECHO, um, as we mentioned last week, there was a seven plus seven pilot, which means that if you have a COVID positive exposure um, within a school setting, um, that's not uh, for kids who have household um, based close contacts, uh, they are now able to be at home for seven days plus then as a negative day six test, they can return for seven days of daily rat testing and then the standard day 13 clearance test. However, that's all designated through the schools or early childhood settings and it has to be applied for through the schools and we shouldn't have anything to do with it. Um, but if you get questions again, ask the parents to contact the schools. Um, Check-in codes, we've had a few questions about why we're still using them, what's the point? Um, we are still using them to trace and contact trace. Um, and I think it's really useful to sort of reflect if you get questions from people about why we're still using them. It's again, like sort of how we saw mask wearing and how we saw mask wearing outdoors. The benefit of mask wearing outdoors didn't give us great gains but it normalized it. So I think with the check-ins, we do sort of check in regularly everywhere and it just helps to make it a bit of a habit. Um, but we do use the DVR data to be able to send out text messages if there has been an exposure site. Um, so while we may not be making people close contacts in the same way that we were previously, we're not sort of tier one, um, we're not making supermarkets, for example, a tier one location in the same way that we were previously, um, you may get text messages at times saying you've been to a location where there's been COVID, um, monitor for symptoms. Um, and then in the future, what may occur um, as our data team at the Department of Health um, delve more into what's possible, we may be able to use DVR data to sort of highlight where there are hotspots um, of outbreaks, and that may be able to help um, sort of with some of the tracing and tracking and public health measures, but that's still in the planning phase. South Australian borders are finally open, which uh, on November the 24th, which is going to make a big difference to a lot of our cross-border communities who may be able to actually travel beyond their 70k limit to access healthcare, um, which is going to be exciting for a lot of people. Um, that's probably the only impact that this will have um, on Victoria, it will probably cause a lot more anxiety on the South Australian side of the border than ours. Um, the public health response, um, we do trace onwards infections, not acquisition. This is really important if you do get cases um, when you think that they've been to somewhere that was important that they may have contracted it from. If you let the public health team know this um, or encourage the patient to tell, um, because sometimes this is the only way that we get not, um, knowledge of larger outbreaks. Um, exposure site listings aren't really happening anymore. And um, this is something to sort of tell patients as well. Um, so I'll just go on to the next slide. They're just our fabulous public health unit contacts. Definitely take them down. They'll be sent out in the slide pack. Health Pathways have um, 
current information, we've got the COVID positive care pathways and we've updated the child um, assessment pathway. It won't have the localised information yet because we're still getting that settled in for our regions, uh, but the COVID positive care in the community pathway will still be rest relevant for paediatrics. Um, but the child assessment pathway is where you're going to find that clinical information and that's been developed by the Melbourne team predominantly in terms of the clinical information in line with the Royal Children's Hospital guidelines. Vaccinations, um, what we're really seeing in COVID is that it is currently a disease of the non-vaccinated and the waning immunity. Um, so we're seeing outbreaks in aged care settings. The severity of those outbreaks is not at the level that it was last year, um, but we think that they are sort of getting outbreaks because of this waning immunity. So boosters are really key. Um, if you are finding that um, going into aged care is a challenge in terms of if you've got some people who aren't quite at that six month mark and from a logistical point, um, it doesn't make sense. Uh, you, you are able to do the booster shots anytime from five months onwards. It's preferable to do them from six months, but if you have to for logistical purposes, for outreach visits, it is approved to do it from five months onwards in it from the Atagi guide, guidance. Um, and so when you get your vaccine passport, it doesn't actually show up that you've had a booster shot. It just still shows up that you are fully immunized. Um, and currently it won't differentiate between people who have had two doses, people who have had three doses. Um, so we're getting a lot of people in the um, anti-vax community who are waiting for Novavax uh, because it is um, sort of promoted as a more traditional vaccination. Um, and so I think my guidance around that is we don't know when it's coming. Um, so some people are sort of asking if they should wait and use their leave. And my advice is, I don't know when it's coming. And it's the same advice around um, children at the moment. We don't know when they will be eligible for vaccination either. Moderna has put in its application to the TGA for approval, both for booster doses and for the six to 12 age group, um, not the five to 12 age group, in, interestingly. So we may have some different, different guidance on that. Um, so we'll wait and see for those, but we'll keep you up to date through ECHO and through the PHN, um, and I'm sure you'll hear about it. COVID care resources, um, particularly for today, definitely check out the Royal Children's Hospital guidance. Um, and I think that might be all from me, um, apart from the Health Pathways links, as always. Great. Thank you, Kate. Um, yeah, so a little bit of uh, discussion in the chat about RACs. Um, so I think it's, we've probably got a little bit of time. Thank you for, your, um, for Linda and Kate running so, um, you know, speedy and on time. So I just wanted to open up that one because I know when we first, when the RACs were first being rolled out, uh, the contracts really kind of, we were being asked to kind of let the contracted kind of Aspen and S SOS, I think they were, um, to do that work. And uh, whereas this time around, I believe there's a little bit more flexibility. So if a GP is <clears throat> looking after the significant, um, you know, population within Iraq, that they can um, potentially go in and do all the vaccines for that um, population group. But Linda or Kate, just want to clarify that. So is that a discussion that a GP would have with the RAC or... Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Definitely. Um, Aspen have been busy over the last two weeks organising their schedule, but if you felt that you wanted to um, vaccinate your own residents, then that's fine. 
as well. Yep. There's no, yeah, there's no, they don't own the residence per se. They're just there offering a service. Offering a service. Okay. Yeah. So it could be that you might be doing the, the, you know, stepping in and doing the boosters. It could be that GPs play a role in mopping up, as you say, those ones that fall outside of the, um, that, that interval when Aspen do come back, asked about um, a coordinating role. So um, I guess that would be who would need to do that. So the RAC would need to be able to know and keep track of who's been vaccinated and who needs being vaccinated. And then, yeah, I think, yeah, they'll, we'll need some discussion around that. We don't um, receive any resident details. We, we don't want to um, for privacy reasons, but yeah, definitely some sort of coordination around that. We'll, we can have a, have a think about that as a team. Does that sound like that's kind of responded to sort of think, thinking you've got to yeah, Yes. To I mean, the, just the difficulty is because the Pfizer comes in a six-dose vial um, and it's just more tricky to transport vaccines that are already drawn up and the drawing up. It's just, I was just thinking logistically, it's probably yeah. easier oh, to do I see. batches yeah. of six than go in and do one resident here and one resident there and whether there is some way of coordinating that if I happen to be going in to do some Pfizer boosters on the residents that are will have come in and had their first doses late because they're new residents after um, the, the uh, Aspen team went through. Is there a facility that I could do six across all practices or if somebody else is going in, could they do mine rather than all the GPs going in with one or two doses that have already been drawn up and everything else? I was just thinking logistics. Mm. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. Any thoughts, Kate or Linda? I we think I'd be really see... happy for you to do my patients. <laughs> if you want to drive out to Nanimuk, it's... Um... <laughs> <laughs> um, Kate, is there any discussion about... I mean, I, I understand, I think the, the vaccines kind of came out in these multi-dose vials as kind of a matter of expediency. Are we going to get single-dose vials or single syringes coming or still in uh, Look, I think it's, it's still... Um, difficult to say. I know the paediatric um, files are going to have a different solution um, so that they're going to be specific for paediatrics so that you can't muck up the dosing oh, with good. them. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be a completely separate thing. But at present, I think we're still stuck with our fabulous multi-dose files. Yep. Um, and I think in terms of the RACF issue, it's just going to be an individual RACF um, kind of logistics thing because they're all... Um, organized in such different ways and with such different sort of oversight um, and sort of internal logistics but I can sort of see the benefits from sort of having that key list and I think from a sort of public health and protection of resident point of view I think the sooner that you can get people who are due for vaccination to get a needle in their arm the better outcomes we're going to get whether there's a third for those who've already had a third dose will there be another will there be a booster six months after the last dose what are the circumstances in which one of our patients might have is that for your immunocompromised so, yeah. yeah that's what I was thinking if yeah already had a third dose uh, uh Karen's actually actually answered it and said that CDC have recommended it but not and I think like the um Atagi's guidance tends to be um a slowly moving kind of feast in that they tend to release the guidance when it's needed. So with the knowledge that they've only just released the immunocompromised third dose, we know that they've got a six month window until they have to release the guidance that says you need a booster dose. Um, so my thought is, um, and sort of reading between the lines with their guidance so far, is that this group will definitely need booster dosing. 
they're probably working out to see if they think that booster dosing will be at six months or if it'll be sooner or if there'll be any differences just waiting on what the international experience is as tends to be sort of our benefit of being a little bit um, delayed from the rest of the world in our COVID experience. So I think that they'll probably use the experience in America and in the UK and Europe um, to be able to guide exactly when the immunocompromised population would best benefit from that extra additional booster dose. But that's a population who will definitely need booster dosing. Um, it's just going to be a matter of when. But I think for those patients, you can say, yes, you'll need booster dosing. That guidance is going to come out. You've got a bit of time to wait, given that you've just had that dosing now. And I think in terms of booster dosing, um, just in general, as a sort of heads up for GPs, um, the data coming out is that people um, sort of who are eligible aren't getting booster doses at the rates that we would expect yet. And there's been sort of a level of sort of people not turning up for booster doses and the rates that we would expect. Um, I think because people are sort of um, living with that confidence that they are sort of considered fully vaccinated at the moment. Um, so I think that that is a point where you can really encourage um, the use of those sort of expiring doses of Pfizer, just seeing where you've got some patients who may be eligible just for your standard six month boosters um, and really advertising them because we've got a group of the population who currently is not turning up um, in the way that we'd expect. Kate, could you clean up my um, language when it comes to referring to third doses and booster doses? I know Norman Swan's very particular about these yep. next doses not being boosters, calling them third doses. But... So third doses is like your third primary course dose is for the immunocompromised. Mm -hmm. So when I sort of say your third dose, that's the primary dose yep. course. Um, so I think if we refer to them as your third primary dose course, that kind of clears up that um, language around that. Great. And then for the booster doses, that's just a booster. Great. Um, and so that's how Shantide is describing it. So they've had their third dose because they're immunocompromised and they'll go on perhaps to have a booster in six months. We don't know yet, but that's what you've been describing. Um, for our current batch of people now eligible because they're six months post their second, we're calling that a booster or a third dose? Sorry. Oh, sorry. So it's for people. The chat. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> So for people, so for, you know, healthcare workers and those 1B, 1A crew who are now coming up to six months post yep. their second, are we going to that's call a that booster. a booster? That's a booster. That's Beautiful. a booster, definitely. Um, and so for the people, and I've just sort of looked in chat um, because we've had um, similar issues in terms of people who are coming from um, overseas as well uh, with non-TGA COVID vaccines and things like that. So that's another issue. Um, it's an air issue. And I'll try and put some things in the chat to sort through this as well. Um, but you end up getting in a bit of a mess when people have had international doses that don't match up in terms of what you then call those doses and those boosters. But that's probably the only other time where your language is going to get a bit messy around what's a booster and what's not. But I think primarily it's your primary course which is two doses or three doses if you're immune um, normal or immunocompromised, and then your boosters are going to be your boosters at six months. 
Great. Thank you. Good. All right. Um, and uh, and thank you. I hope we've answered your questions in the chat. We'll now move on um, to Matt. Hello. Good morning. And thanks for joining us today. Um, so um, we introduced Matthew Drake in, uh, in the intro. Um, but yeah, Matt's a peds nurse. Did you want to start by introducing yourself and then take it away with your presentation? Thanks for joining us this morning. So as Bianca alluded to, I am a paediatric A&M. Um, I've been working on the paediatric ward at Ballarat Health Services for nearly 11 years in March. Um, and then all of a sudden within 24 hours, I was picked up from my nice comfy inpatient role, um, dropped into an adult VHS at home team. So the hospital and the home program and was heading up the paediatric COVID, um, which really had no idea about. Um, I'd worked so much on the inpatient model and the inpatient um, processes. And then it was all just turned and flipped on its head. And I become a community nurse um, inside an adult team to implement and integrate paediatrics into their service. Um, there's a picture of my dog who is very helpful with version control. Um, so when we were getting processes on paper, they seem to be out of date. Um, so it is good that the public health has sort of allowed us to have a week of no not really big changes in the world. Um, so we can sort of have a little bit more time to have actual stuff on paper. Um, so yeah, next slide, thank you, Bianca. Um, so currently the process at Ballarat Health Services is the public health unit contacts the intake team at Ballarat Health Services. Um, our medical staff will then complete the restratification and the admission. Um, our doctors that are doing this are adult medical registrars. So they're very, very limited in the scope of paediatrics. Um, hence why I came along to sort of help in that area. Um, still very difficult for them, especially when all the childhood illnesses and um, all the complex um, comorbidities are in place. Um, half of them, a lot of our doctors haven't actually heard before. Um, so it is very tricky there. Um, we are trying to, and it is still always a sticking point, trying to um, mould the inpatient and the community model to have the medical expertise across the board. Um, so we, we do have paediatric expert, uh, the paediatric medical team from the hospital having slight input, but we would like to have and a little bit more of that. Um, we're aiming to have the low risk patients at that risk stratification managed by the GPs um, as the GPs will often know the patients fairly well. Um, and we're trying to utilize the foundational processes. So if people become unwell, they'll contact their GP. These patients that we're looking at low risk, they are essentially asymptomatic. So hopefully when they do become unwell, they would talk to the GP and then the GP can escalate as needed or keep an eye on them. Next slide. Um, so the adult side of things, uh, we've got this risk stratification we use at Ballarat Health Services. Um, so once again, the very low and the low risk, the very mild symptoms, um, nothing more than what we often wake up in Ballarat with all winter long. Um, we all often have a runny nose and a sore throat all winter. Um, and if you go to the next slide, um, the Safety Care Victoria put out this um, risk stratification table, which has been discussed a lot. 
Um, and we're looking at the family self-monitoring in the low risk categories are the ones that we would be looking at trying to get the GPs to look after. So if you look at the symptoms um, column under the low, which I've highlighted, we're looking at very asymptomatic patients. Um, so back two years ago, patients that have got symptoms would be arriving at their GPs. So they would be the GPs would be looking after these snotty kids, uh, which if they get a bit of snottiness, they often will end up in the medium category. Um, so they're looking after the fairly well patients. So at the moment, a lot of our kids are in this low category. Um, so it is a lot of our patients that we could be not sort of following in the hospital. Um, and we can actually focus on our medium to high risk adult patients that we all know are getting the raw end of the stick when it comes to COVID-19. Next slide. So the patients on admission to our service, they receive the information book, which has all the escalation numbers, contact details, medication information, physiotherapy, dietetics, and mental health contacts. This is one of those things that when I first came into the BHS Home program was all adult focused. So there was very minimal discussion about pediatrics. Um, there was the chest physio um, handout, which was all about deep breathing and coughing. And if anyone's ever worked with kids or one-year-olds to try to get deep breathing and coughing done, it's near on impossible. Um, so it was really good to really integrate that into the process. Um, so it's a one-stop shop for families as well. So we're not handing out a pediatric one and an adult one, where it's just a family one. So everyone's on the same page. Um, depending on the location, um, so Grandparents Health is quite broad. Um, so having the central location of Ballarat Health Services, it is a bit of a long drive. Um, as somebody suggested, Natty Mucks um, are quite a long way away from Ballarat. So we can't just jump in the car and drop off a SAT monitor and a thermometer. So we're looking at the local health services to provide those monitoring products. Um, so we can, or the outreach centres can actually still monitor their patients. Um, with the medium to high risk patients, um, the high risk patients will receive twice daily phone calls. Um, and there will be a phone call from the monitoring team to check in on them. Um, the low risk and the medium risk, sometimes they're daily phone calls. Um, but when we're looking at what Sydney has already done um, and the Children's Hospital up in Sydney, they were doing sort of twice the third daily phone calls um, for their low risk patients. And that would be something we're looking at for the GP pathway as well, sort of touching base every couple of days. Um, Next slide. Um, so as I am alluding to, I've sort of tried to integrate paediatrics and the GP pathway into it. Um, so the patients that are stratified into low risk categories can be managed by their GPs. Um, the GPs will receive a document very similar to the ones that the patients are receiving, but it will outline the process of what we're expecting from the GPs, um, how to escalate. Um, so they'll have our numbers, um, doctor's numbers, um, out of hours numbers as well. Um, and the patients will also receive the very similar handout to what we have um, as what I'm classifying as an inpatient, so our community-based um, treatment. Um, and we've also put together a bit of a cheat sheet. So paediatrics, um, we're talking anyone from sort of 
one month old right through to 18 years. So it's a very broad topic. Um, so it's very hard to sort of say a one-stop shop. Uh, so if you go to the next slide, um, in the GP's handout, we're actually putting some questions in um, the information as well, just to help guide them um, in regards to things to look for with their patients. Um, these questions are very similar to the ones we're actually implementing into our um, technology at Ballarat Health Services when it comes to patient monitoring. Um, we're trialling an app at the moment. And these questions, if you sort of hit yes, they'll escalate as needed. So these have been put into the GP um, handouts just to help alert um, the GPs if there is any difference in their paediatric patients. Um, I do have sort of both ends of the, the paediatric range there. So they're very similar questions. However, they're worded differently to sort of base on your patient. Um, so things to look for um, in a, a, a baby. Um, so if they're moving their arms and legs, might be a bit easier to examine in a 12 to 18 year old or the 12 to 18 year old will be able to explain that a bit different. Um, so they are very paediatric specific. Um, what you can't see at the bottom is the vital sign parameters, um, which we've implemented from the Victor charts. Um, so the statewide um, observation charts, we've made sure we've put the different parameters for the different age groups. So there is five lots of different questions to base on those charts. Um, and those Victor numbers are also utilised by our monitoring team at Ballarat Health Services when they're doing their phone calls to the paediatric patients. Um, so when we've got adult nurses or we've even got allied health doing those phone calls, they know paediatrics. Um, next slide. Um, so I really tried to work out some key points to take away um, because there'll be a lot of information today. And, but I think the real key points are the GPs have actually looked after sicker kids um, than they'll ever come across with COVID. Um, you might get the odd patients that is sick with COVID, but hopefully if they're restrained they would never be seen by the GP. Um, and BH at home are currently looking after snotty children. Um, I, think, I think last week the paediatrician from Bendigo alluded to making phone calls to snotty kids um, moving forward. Um, and he doesn't think that that will be something that we're going to do moving forward. Um, but they're the ones that are still on our program because they're symptomatic. Um, the GPs will be looking after the less sick, so the non-snotty children. Um, a lot of the parents are often concerned and anxious um, in regards to when COVID, the word COVID is mentioned. Um, a lot of healthcare workers also are doing exactly the same. And what we're seeing is, I don't think COVID's any worse in paediatrics than any other childhood viruses, so RSV especially. Um, we've had many uh, winters that we've had RSV kids ventilated and tubed since Melbourne. Um, and I don't think the rates are any higher for COVID-19. Um, and we're probably seeing more bronch in hospitals with RSV than what we are bronch caused by COVID-19. Um, so they're sort of the main key points that I really want to make today about paediatrics. 
Well, that almost concludes our didactic content for this morning. We won't bring you the recording of the case discussion, but come along and join the discussion next week. Jump on the evaluation. Um, you can just put in some free text there as well and let us know how we're doing in these sessions. I want to thank you so much, Matt, for coming along today. And I, I think you know we'll be inviting you back next year as it starts to become business as usual in primary care. And it's sounding like um, things are gearing up in, in, in your region to be working um, with the GPs around some of these low-risk pathways. Um, um, so thanks so much for sharing your, um, you know, your experience of having to pivot in the last five weeks to becoming a COVID expert. We really, uh, really appreciate you sharing your expertise. Um, and GPs, I want to kind of check how you guys are feeling and what are you thinking? And, uh, you know, so let us know. Um, please share anything in the free text. Get in touch with us at Project Echo. Um, you've got our, oh, there's our email. Um, and we're going to keep the conversations going. Let me know what else you feel you need us to bring you to um, build the confidence systems skills capacity um, for us to start to transition to um, this as business as usual as we head into 2022. All right, well, um, take care out there. And uh, I'm very grateful, Kate Graham, you're not bringing us too many changes this week. And we can all hopefully find that it's, you know, we, things won't change very much in primary care just yet. For the next, uh, we'll have a weekend, hey? <laughs> take care. We'll see you next week, guys. Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google Westfic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network and you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions and you'll also receive our resource pack. That includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.